0: Alexa, all right, all right. Stop, 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 stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. This is Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls.
1: Welcome to Alexa, stop. This is episode number twelve, and we are today talking about being a bit more pirate. Robert Belgrave, what's the most pirate moment in your life? <laughs> um, uh,
0: probably stealing all my music for ten years in the early that, <laughs> the that type of pirate That's that type of piracy. Uh, yeah yeah, I probably shouldn't admit that. I think I've air. probably
1: had days where I've only told uh, pirate jokes
0: <laughs> that we do celebrate International Pirate Day at Warhive, and my business partner James likes to wear an eye patch and a hat and even has a blow-up parrot. Why are pirate days good days? Uh, why are pirate What kind of a question is that? Because they are. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I, I put that for you on a play it Robert. is: there it is. So, uh, Jim, why are we talking about Pirates today? Well, we have an amazing guest with us in the studio, none other than Mr. Sam Conniff of Liberty fame. And Sam has written a very interesting book, which we're going to talk about. Holy moly,
1: someone on the podcast promoting a book. <laughs> Things are getting serious. Yeah, I know. It's almost like a BBC One talk show. We asked him before he had a book and he said no, but now he's got a book.
0: He said he'd come. It's true. It's true. Yeah. When he was just running an amazing agency that was changing the world of marketing, he wasn't interested, but, but now he's got got a book to push he's 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 here sam is an amazing guy great public speaker and i think you might be pleasantly surprised by the nature of the pirate chat that we'll be having later on this episode
1: i'm excited by pirate chat um so what's been happening it's a little while since we've been together
0: yeah yeah it's been a little while things are good we are what we doing we're both looking forward to going to texas aren't we next month together staying in an airbnb four miles out of town to save a bit of money but uh south by southwest festival for a second year in a row it's gonna be great
1: It's funny, isn't it, that this will be the second time that we've lived in a house together for a week. It's it's becoming like a pattern of our lives. It it is, although I suspect this might be slightly
0: less palatial than the Portuguese trip last summer. Um, Good. Um, (laughs) Shall we get on with the show? I think we should. It's news time, Jim. If you would do the honours with a jingle, please. It's the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it is the news. Yes, indeed it is. And we couldn't start anywhere this month other than the launch of Falcon Heavy... Elon Musk's latest success story in his quest to become some sort of insane Bond villain that owns a planet.
1: It was everywhere, wasn't it? Major rocket action, Tesla's flying into space. Yeah. David Bowie. David Bowie playing. Yeah. I just the sheer gall
0: of the man that, well, breaking some sort of incredible record for rocketeering. Is that what you call it? I don't know, I guess you can call it that. Rocket science, let's call it. He decided to launch his own Tesla Roadster sports car into space, complete with a mannequin in a Tesla <laughs> spacesuit, which they've now decided to propel all the way to Mars and back. I've got a feeling it's not going to quite make Mars, though, isn't it? Wasn't that Is the follow-up not? story? Oh, I thought, I thought they just said it was going to overshoot and, and may never return. Too far, I guess. We, we're just building up some corrections for next time, <laughs> just to make this sort of perfect. Yes, indeed we are. But, um, you know, look, I think if you haven't watched the footage of the Falcon Heavy launch, it's worth watching. It's, it's spectacular the way the boosters come back down to Earth, almost like a sort of pair of figure skaters in the uh, current Olympics performing their their beautiful ice dancing they come down in perfect harmony together very topical very topical and the look on elon's face is just incredible
1: i think do you know what i thought was best and this perhaps relates to some of what we'll talk about later um someone that i follow on twitter i can't remember who posted a picture of their daughter the next day drawing a picture of a rocket and it's the sort of i think that was pete
0: trainer previous guest pete trainer yeah it was really inspiring wasn't it and and just about how You know, the work that Elon's doing is inspiring a whole generation to think about space exploration again. And I think
1: we've missed that for the last sort of 10, 20 years. And just big dreams in general. And we're going to be talking about big dreams and things like that today. So, yeah, it's a relevant story. What else has been going on? Well, all manner of great
0: things. I thought as a big Twitter fan and uh, do follow us on Twitter, Alexa underscore stop, if you'd like to interact with the show. Twitter finally made a profit. Oh, my goodness. Surely not. How could Twitter make a profit? No one uses it apart from the Trump. <laughs> yeah, apart from apart from newspaper journalists. Yeah, they finally made a profit, which I think is uh worth a mention, right? And and apparently it was a surprise even to Wall Street, who who had them forecast not and, to make a profit. And Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and, and turns out to Twitter's executive team, who had no idea, when asked, had no idea why or how they'd made a profit. But um joking apart, video apparently is the the reason. They say that their pivot into Doing more video stuff is a big part of it. And obviously the advertising formats that that supports and so on. I mean, really, all social networks, as we all know, re- only make money from advertising. And Twitter seem to have finally kind of found a way to pivot into that, which has produced some revenue for them. So, uh,
1: and while we're talking yeah. about social networks, I guess uh, we can move on to Spotify. And a little bit of snooping on Spotify uh, suggests that they're hiring some hardware folk um, which is potentially oh, yeah. exciting because they've got their Spotify Connect platform, which means you know your Echo and lots of other devices can, can work with Spotify. But it looks like they may be planning to make their own speakers. Oh, really? So
0: any thoughts on what that might look like? Will it be green? I hope it's green. W- will it speak in Swedish? Maybe it will. Um, Maybe English in a slightly Swedish accent, just for... And one
1: of the things, I think exciting things are happening for for Spotify at the moment. So certainly here at Manifesto, we're participating in the beta of their self-service advertising platform. So we're able to push out adverts on Spotify, if they're going to have their own speakers. They're sort of starting to really move on as a business from, you know, the stuff they're doing. And a lot of their AI AI stuff at the moment is super accurate. I I know I'm getting a constant supply of 90s boy band music, which is exactly what I want. I can... Mm. Assure
0: you that that is exactly what Jim wants, and that I have personally witnessed the uh, daily mix that Spotify serves up for him. Yeah, and my time capsule is like on yeah. the money. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, look, I I think Spotify has been a great business for a long time. The product's really good, and I guess that's my my contact point with it. Um, I know that artists aren't. Enamoured with the the revenue cut they get, but I think pretty much everything else about Spotify has always been
1: broadly positive. So it'd be really interesting to see what they do in the hardware arena and get yeah, back to them. And if they start to make money in other ways, maybe they'll pay artists more. Who knows? Um, so something that is we can't really let, let an episode go past without saying something about crypto. But I, I found a slightly uh, different story than most of the crypto stories that we've been talking about. So come on, tell us what it is. Uh, okay,
0: as the show's Mister Crypto, it turns out. Venezuela are launching a state-issued cryptocurrency, which is a very interesting development and something that a lot of people think is going to happen more and more over the coming years. Uh, I know India's government have talked about issuing a digital rupee, and China have been very interested in in sort of similar concept. It's backed against a number of natural resources, got, uh, diamonds, gas, gold, and petrol, I think, or oil That's rather. Right, yeah. And uh, it launches today, actually, on the day of recording. So in, in, in what's 20th of February or something today we're recording? So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. 21st, 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 21st. It'll be really interesting to see how that goes. And maybe we'll report back on that next month and see, see how it went. It'll, I, I suspect it'll either be quite successful or a complete abject failure, but will uh, time will tell. Giving yourself some options there, hedging, <laughs> yeah. Rob, Rob's hedging his options. What I'll do is I'll cut the, you know, probably by the time we get the edit done, it'll be clear so
1: I can cut one version or the other. I think it'll be really successful. So uh, one other story that I thought was really fascinating uh, this month that kind of like goes back to uh, our episode with Nigel William from the IPA. The computational propaganda computational stuff. Computational propaganda yeah, yeah. stuff, yeah. There's an article in The Guardian um, two weeks ago, I think it was, about the YouTube algorithm. And a former engineer from YouTube uh, had uh, basically built a piece of software to monitor what, what YouTube recommends when you watch a certain video. And right, okay. His, al- his analysis of the algorithm found that um, uh, during the US election, uh, YouTube was more likely to, by a, t- a factor of six, times six, to recommend content that favored Trump uh, over Hillary Clinton.
0: Fascinating. Does the article go on to talk about why?
1: So I suppose that the thing is, it talks in in detail about the the, the factors of of the algorithm. And and this is a sort of real chicken and egg conversation, right? Because is it what people want that's feeding the algorithm so it's giving you more of what you want? Or are the factors that they've built into the algorithm uh, inherently trying to drive people down Paths that will generate sort of more ad revenue and things like that. So um, it kind of relates not not only to that episode that we looked at, but also perhaps the um, ethics of machine learning and AI, which we talked about on episode 11, so with Andy Budd. So it's just a really in-depth article, and uh, YouTube are a little bit sheepish about their response to it, um, and uh, well worth the read on the Guardian website.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, today's front page of the New York Times is all about whether Google has too much power. And there's been a lot said about Facebook in the last couple of weeks about their control and authority of advertising and the Russian meddling story rolls on. So it seems like probably all going to come to a head right over the coming months and, and certainly years
1: it's not it's not something that's going away i mean i think interesting. i saw an article this week that talked about how facebook had peaked yeah, um, yeah. and so you know do we believe that from somewhere another platform will come up and compete with them i think you have to believe that will happen because that's that's what pirates would do um but um <laughs> and we'll talk more about that later but i think at the moment yeah there is there is a, a, a quite a big monopoly for them in in certain aspects of our lives
0: yeah absolutely and and i think the sentiment is that it needs to change. And, you know, not to keep talking about the interview we'll come to, but I think that that's all part of it is that consumers are getting pissed off and people are starting to realize the damage that some of this stuff is causing to our brains and our society frankly. And talking about our damaged brains, sometimes we get things wrong. <laughs> we do. It's time for some corrections or a correction rather. This is a pedantic one. This is a really pedantic one. And to be fair, the, the, the Martin who sent this in did lead by saying it's horribly pedantic, but you did say you like corrections. It's it, true. We in, love in it. In fairness, we, we did and we do. We, 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 we speak to your inner pedant. Bring uh, it on. <laughs> yeah, bring, out, bring it out. So last month we talked about robots. And the LG robot. Can you remember the name of the weird was it LG Cli robot? Cleo or yeah, Cleo, Cleo, something like that. Yeah. Um, the CMO of LG was on stage demoing this robot, and it totally wet the bed and let him down quite spectacularly, which we thought was quite entertaining. Yeah. Um, love that. And I think it was Jim, just to you know pass the buck, that coined the uh, <laughs> the well-known phrase that you should never work with children or animals, which I'm told by Martin is a W.C. Fields quote. And apparently it's often misconceived because the reason that the quote was originally issued was that he wouldn't work with children or animals, not because they're difficult to work with, but because they would steal the show and would be considerably more popular than
1: him. Yeah, I think it applies to robots. So, you know, it works in both senses. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so we don't remember the name of the CMO of LG, do we? So I suppose on this occasion, uh,
0: yeah, the the anecdote stands true. So there we go. There's our correction. We're sorry for for getting things wrong. We will do it in future. We'll, yeah, we will definitely get things wrong again in the future. So do you know what time it is? I think it might be time...
1: F- for a story from your CTO. Yes,
0: indeed. And uh, the much-loved CTO that that is... My business partner, who shall not be named, has yet again delivered on a heady mix of crazy and tech genius. And uh, Tell me. (laughs) What is it, Rob? Tell me. Give me. (laughs) Hit me with this. So this month, and I feel like our our, our CTO's wife seems to feature quite regularly in his crazy. So um, in their house in uh, rural Hampshire, they have a downstairs lavatory, which can be a little cold during the winter months. And uh, my CTO's wife suggested perhaps they could install some electric underfloor heating. But he decided that that was simply too simple. Because, you know, highly sophisticated electric underfloor heating, nah, so passe. Need to do something a little bit more exotic than that. So uh, he obviously runs several servers at home and obviously uses their spare CPU cycles to mine cryptocurrency because, you know, in 2018, what, that's what you do with your spare computing cycles. And so he's decided he's going to build some ducting to channel the thermal output of the servers he has at home to the colder areas of the house,
1: including the downstairs lavatory. I mean, that is ridiculous. <laughs> I think it's probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. It's genius and ridiculous at the same time. But the fact that he, you know, he'll have a server room at some point just so he, he can mine enough things to keep his bathroom floor warm...
0: Yeah, and apparently it's become quite a popular thing for students to do uh, in colder countries where in, rather than have to pay for heating, they just buy a couple of crypto mining rigs and just leave them running the whole time and it keeps their room at a, a nice even 21 degrees. Amazing. So there we go.
1: So we all need to move somewhere cold, buy a load of servers, mine some crypto and keep and, ourselves and warm by doing it. just about break
0: even. Yeah, seems, seems like a great idea.
1: But so that's our story from my CTO this month. Time for something from the hype curve. Something from the hype curve. Do you know what I've put on this time? Something that is flying into the trough of disillusionment.
0: At breakneck speed, by the sounds of it. At breakneck
1: speed. Um, So that is cognitive expert advisors.
0: What the hell is a cognitive expert advisor, Jim?
1: Well, a cognitive expert advisor is basically some sort of like mashup of machine learning meets... smart assistant kind of thing but it has its own separate entry on the hype curve so i thought i'd mention it because we've never talked about it before um so it's uh something that learns from interactions can understand natural language things like that and then can sort of make suggestions or recommendations to you so obviously these are sort of present on in some form in uh, our lives uh, and on many websites lots of things have recommendation engines but i think this is The ability to continually learn and auto-adapt, and that obviously exists in some things, but um, I think what what they're saying is these things on some level are out there, but people are going to be increasingly disappointed with how good they are over the next sort of year or two before they start being put into wide acceptance. So
0: um, I was reading about Android P, which is the next major release of the Android operating system for smartphones, which people think will come out later this year, perhaps alongside a Pixel 3 smartphone from Google themselves. Right, Um, And they're talking about how it's the iPhone killer, basically, in terms of quality of, of user experience. And, you know, that's the marketing version. But what's interesting, you know, talking to one of the leading AI engineers involved in the project is that they're trying to bring together a lot of the work they've done in this area with the Cognitive Expert advisors stuff that they have integrated into Google Now, which is the kind of mm. context-aware machine learning notification and dashboard thing. Um, and apparently they see the smartphone as the kind of user interface to the smart home, in the future and obviously google's little home smart home device has become very popular this year and has sort of elbowed out the uh the th- wonderful device that our show is named after a little bit and um and yeah it's just really interesting how using that kind of you know ai machine learning context aware advisor stuff they're trying to bring it all together so that ultimately it, it sort of culminates in the lock screen of your phone always having the right stuff on it all the time without you needing to do anything so if you're on a bus it tells you where the next stop is automatically and, and pro- works out where it thinks you're trying to get off for example or if you're in an Uber it just knows you're in an Uber and tells you how much the journey is costing you and the name of your
1: driver and maybe gives you music controls or something like that. And of course what's interesting about this is what, you, what you've got is multiple people battling for this ground so you've got Google Assistant that you can have as an app on your iPhone if you choose to you've got Messenger so this week Messenger's uh, AI assistant started interacting with me a bit more I'm sure they're rolling it out and testing it on different people for different oh, yeah? things but you know it it's trying to own making payments so i said in a conversation yesterday um i'll send you some money uh, and i said the amount of money and it recognized that and it immediately created a button which said pay that that amount of money
0: in line in the messenger in in, in
1: line in messenger yeah and so um you can see that there's this battleground because, you know, definitely Apple, definitely Google, definitely Facebook, definitely Amazon all want a piece of that. And and so actually what I sort of foresee is a period of time where our lives don't get easier, where the major players' uh, technology is sort of slightly battling with each other for supremacy of owning our sort of walled garden life. And I yeah. think... It's not like in China where WeChat is is, is very sort of ubiquitous. Um, I think here the, there are, albeit, major players, several of them.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think until someone emerges as a clear leader, you're right. We'll probably have this sort of warring factions and and questionable
1: user experience as a result. But um, and I mean, I'm getting if I buy something on PayPal at the moment, I, I now automatically get an alert in Messenger. Um, but I also then get all the alerts I used to get, so I know that I've paid for something four times on but in one channel better to be sure i I definitely paid for it and if i if i then bought that on 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 my monzo card which i haven't got but you have um then i would get an alert from monzo as well so you're just getting like you know by the way you spent 10 pounds you spent 10 pounds you spent 10 pounds you spent 10 (laughs) pounds and shout
0: out to the monzo team for generally being awesome and jim we need to get you signed up but um louise has got one there we go there we go so jim i think that's enough of hype curve action for this month but we should finish
1: off before we bring in Sam for our interview with a piece of technology we would like to bring back. What have I, we got this month? I've got into the retro toys vibe. So we, we did Teddy Ruxpin uh, last episode. And uh, this month I, I was looking at um, the Armatron. I just love... There's a picture of it here, which we'll put in the show notes. Wow. I just really love some of the stuff that Tomy developed uh, in the 1980s. So this is from 1980 and it's an, an arm with a joystick and uh, you know it lets you grab stuff. It's, you know, the height of robotics, but from, you know, nearly 40 years ago.
0: It looks a little bit like one of those grabbing arms
1: in the arcade that, that never never, never picks up it. a toy. My my brother is very good at those. He, oh, can, really? he can win at, can he? At, in, in the arcade. It's possible to get a toy? I'll take you to Hearn Bay one time and we'll bring him out and he'll win you a toy. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's worth the journey just for that.
1: So, yeah, the Armatron. I think probably you need the picture to really do it justice. So, which is older
0: than me, it turns out. Okay, rubbing it in. (laughs) Yeah, the Armatron looks like a wonderful piece of tech. I'm not sure I would bring it back, but I can imagine if you had one of those in an agency, people would probably have some fun with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know it looks exciting, and you know you could get some really naff little toys that that you could try and grab with it, and let people keep it if they are successful.
0: Yeah, you certainly could. And so, from naff toys to a quick plug. We are organising an amazing conference in April on the 26th in Guildford called WXG. We've got a fantastic list of speakers and tickets are available now. So please do get involved if you like the sort of content that you're hearing today. I'm hosting on the day. Uh, I'm not sure if Jim will be with me, but I'm certainly eager that he'll come along and uh i'll send a photo as a, as a bare minimum <laughs> i'll send a photo not, a signed photo if, <laughs> if not maybe i'll get him to, to do a little video piece for us on the screen and yeah it'd be great to have as many of you along as
1: possible i'll be there with bells on there it is and um, th- that one's to edit in if i can make it um also uh, what i should say is that we're going to be at south by southwest come and see us at 5 p.m on friday the 9th of march uh, and we don't know what we're doing yet but it'll be amazing and you can come and get drunk with us afterwards
0: yeah they'll definitely be beer we're thinking maybe something about the kind of digital renaissance and how the best is yet to come they seem to like that in the pitch didn't they so
1: i couldn't remember what we pitched rob if <laughs> i'm honest <laughs> but uh, we got accepted
0: so we'll, we'll work it out it'd be great yeah so if you're in texas for for south by do come along on the friday it'd be great to see you there right we'll uh we'll just get the studio sorted and then we'll be welcoming mr sam conniff to tell us all about how to be more pirate Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to the studio, Mr. Sam Conniff. How are you today?
2: I'm fantastic. Thank you both very
0: much indeed. Well, Thank you for joining us. Uh, As always, I think we'll start by giving a bit of history on how we met. And uh, I always like to tell that story. So we actually only met recently, but I heard about you some time ago when a mutual friend of ours and actually well, previous employee of yours, Mr. Felix Morgan, told me that he once saw you speak and was so in awe of your performance and the purpose with which you built your business, Liberty, that he knew he just had to work for you. And I suppose duly applied and was got the job. So, um quite the impact
2: i remember it slightly differently i was at uh, innovation social and i was doing a talk about i think the the evolutionary force of purpose within business and what it means in terms of strategy and 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 evolution and felix who you know to be a very smart and inquisitive chap contacted me immediately it wasn't it wasn't overtly for a job it was to challenge me on the model nice and he came in uh, early one morning to really take me to task on the model And his main concern was, whilst the notion of working with young people in the way that we do, he could see that it would unlock some kind of insights. If you just left young people in the control of of creating strategy and content, wouldn't the world be full of cat videos? And so where did the quality come in and where did the strategic thinking come in? Or worse, was I up on stage uh, making the case for purpose, but actually I was a charlatan. And we were presenting that it was young people led and purpose driven, but actually behind the scenes, it was different
0: I see so, then then it was was that r- so it was your response to that challenge that led to the the desire to work together
2: Well, I think it was so you know I mean Felix is a man of in- integrity in his challenge, and he wanted to know whether because he just wanted to know I think yeah, yeah, and my response was it's kind of neither it's about doing the best work, and the opportunity that we have uh, unlike most agencies where there's a an insight report or maybe a focus group if you're lucky, and then some smart oxbridge planners will turn that into a you know three slide deck and suddenly your strategy is built Ours is raw and deep and surrounds us because the real lives of these young people have come to trust us and we're incredibly honoured and lucky that they share our space. And that is a gateway to doing the best work of your lives, which is why our clients come to us and and why most of our team are there. So we should get into talking about your network and how it
1: works in a little while, but I reckon, Rob, you should do a little bit of an introduction, first of all, to kick us off.
0: Let's let's take a step back to take two forward. So Sam co-founded Liberty in 2001 as an experiment in ethical marketing that grew into an international youth-led creative network with 100 staff in two continents, which empowers young people to change their world. You've won a number of awards for Liberty. It's clearly been a fantastic success. I've always been very impressed by what I've seen of it from the periphery, and it's always... I guess, like Felix, I was always a bit skeptical is this really sincere? But as I got to know people that were involved in the business more closely, I realized it absolutely is and, and it's delivering on its message. You know, you've worked with some amazing brands Google, YouTube, PlayStation, Facebook, Red Bull, just to name a few. Uh, there's, there's quite a few more here. I could carry on, but I won't. And, you know, you had an amazing journey with that, but you've recently stepped back to kind of pass the baton on to a new team. So maybe we'll talk about that a bit. And before that, you had quite an interesting background with the Don't Panic organization which maybe you could talk a bit about too and now obviously you're involved in helping make the world a bit more pirate which we'll come on to as well so sam in your in your own words maybe you could give us a bit of bit of history on your on your adventures
2: Uh, there's a consistent thought in there right um that i've always had a an ambition to try and change the world in some kind of positive way and and i'm not i haven't always been entirely sure where that came from and in the very early days when i was a teenager that was putting on raves and we would even we would have banners in these nightclubs we were running in car parks in Battersea or in crypts in Brixton, and, and literally on the back of our flyers and stuff would print "Save the World." You know, I didn't have any idea how dancing until six in the morning was good for the world, but it kind of felt like it was. And then as "Don't Panic" turned into a thing from my bedroom of putting on nights and then printing flyers and distributing flyers and turned into these packs, uh, and you couldn't come out of a night. Uh, or an event in the in the city without running into one of our packs we were kind of pre-social media form of communication that's how i know you best actually
1: really so i used to write for drowned in sound and, oh, yeah. uh, um, and um, uh, which is a music an online music magazine and and yeah don't panic was very much around the same sort of time as that yep. was, got big and so yeah
2: saw it outside lots of gigs and that the the opportunity the first f- f- kind of fanzine that we wrote was all about counterculture. was What else can you go and do? So going out raving's fun, but what else can you do? So the early articles were you know, how to start a business or where to go and get funding. And it's late nineties, and you know, come on, get started. You know, get your hands on something. And then we started to find you know, Banksy came to us, Shepard Fairey came to all these wonderful artists of the moment to create these posters. And so it was this this moment. And again, deep down, there was this message of change something, do something, be something. You know, mean something. But I hadn't fully articulated it or worked it out. And then Don't Panic became this this great success, became this this network. We had our ups and downs. There was a number of challenges. I didn't know how to run a business. A couple of death threats ensued. Um, uh, What, just because you didn't know how to run a business? Well... It's a bit harsh. (laughs) I let a few people down quite quite significantly, <laughs> the kind of people you don't want to let down when you don't really know what you're doing. So yeah, they, they, they didn't see the funny side. And we had to evolve it and, and teach ourselves a business. And one of the ways of doing that was to take it out of the world that we loved, which was nightclubs and record labels, and evolve into the world of the agency landscape. And suddenly I met a ton of people who really wanted access to the market that we had, and they saw us as a channel, you know, rather than this, this, this labor of love. And we began to move out of a like couple of grand bits of work into tens and twenties of thousands. And that's when it really struck me. Something happened that I started to meet really smart, intelligent, bright people with their hands on the levers of power, really budget and influence brands that you know, affect people's lives. And they didn't really give a shit. You know, they, they, they drop 100 grand on selling some chewing gum, you know, knowing full well that the world doesn't need chewing gum. And, and worse, you know, there are brands with, that really built on meaning, you know, values like winning and success in life uh, with products that not everyone can afford that are dropped in communities where they have a real effect on young people and their lives and their out- and outlook and I began to worry I began to wonder I began to challenge the notion of marketing as a force for good and of change but also this notion that perhaps your audience isn't just your opportunity but it's also your responsibility and if you're not viewing it as that then you're immediately part of the problem and this was the year of uh, no logo and you know I used to read Adbusters, and so there was, kind of, there was kind of this angry message then around you know the, the growing number of corporates Enron was champion of corporate social responsibility at the time and this idea of liberty began to form. This marketing agency that could go into the the, the belly of the beast, you know, as a Trojan horse that could steal the budget and brands and influence of some of the biggest players and get them to do some good. And that was it. the The, the proposition, the, the 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 question we set ourselves was: Is ethical marketing an oxymoron? You know, we, we viewed it very much as an experiment to see if we could. Uh, make this thing happen. We were based in the middle of Brixton. I've grown up in South London all my life, so I very, felt very familiar with the kind of young people I was talking about. And I began going out into youth clubs uh, in South London to try and recruit young people. Because so there's, there's two things that define liberty. One, that we would only work on campaigns for brands where we could take the business objective and align it with a social objective, still deliver more units sold, products off the shelf or whatever, um, alongside meaningful change and that the office would be a a laboratory of insight and inspiration and imagination that we'd share with young people and a sign of success on a daily basis was that there would be more young people in the office than there would be grown-ups because that meant the equilibrium uh, was always in the favour because they are and still are always the most important people in the room
1: and how do you define young people in that context what, what's the difference where, where does the
2: young person and grown-up line land
1: i can't not ask that question but
2: i mean but yeah uh, if you come to liberty you're asked to sign in as either a young person or, or a grown-up it's it's completely in the mind right it's in my in my head um it's a life stage we, we predominantly work with two life stages one is that education is the big thing in your life and you're either trying to get more out of it or get back into it or or teach it yourself. Um, And the same is kind of career. You're either doing your own thing or you're trying to get more out of the thing or or get into some kind of career. So typically that's teenage years and and early 20s. Statistically, if you haven't found your, your call in life by 24 and you're consistently in trouble, if you're in that spectrum of, of young people's lives, you're fucked. You know, from that point, trying to then find your way back is incredibly difficult. Um, so, there is some kind of uh, meaningful cutoffs if you're going to try and alter the course of a, or help a young person alter the course of their life. But, you know, it's also a mindset. If PlayStation's your client, you'd be naive to think that you know, a 40 year old is not playing games, um, a 45 year old is not right. playing games and thinking of themselves in that sense. Mm. So, and if you're working internationally, you know, the, the notion of motherhood or, or, or what the responsibilities might be on an 18-year-old girl are vastly different from the work we might do in South Africa to the work we'll do in, in, in South Kens- you know, South London. You know, they're completely separate. So you can't be too limited by the numbers. And, and it's weird. It's the only point in life where you do measure people by the by their numbers when they're, when they're younger. It's very much to do with what's going on in their, in their world. But the reason for me stepping back is to do with this because I joked for many, many years. I started Liberty when I was 24 when being 40 felt really old and like it was never going to happen. And I used to joke that being once I was 40, I'd be too old to run a youth program. Um, And uh, lo and behold, it wasn't a joke.
1: <laughs> you never know; there could be a return. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there were just these—you know—there were these, you know, these yeah. moments. My, my business partner and co-founder in it, Michelle Morgan, has this kind of legendary much. She got really frustrated. She was on a call with a client, and you know, you can't help but absorb youth culture around you. You know, we're so lucky; very, very few people get the chance to share so completely the experience of others that they wouldn't normally understand, right? And yeah. if you're day in, day out with predominantly inner-city young black—you know—teenagers, you see a sli- slice of life that helps you overcome some of your own institutionalized prejudices you see slice of life that you wouldn't have necessarily understood but you also pick up and absorb it um and there was a time, and this, this was the story of Michelle, she got off the phone from a client, she slammed the phone down, she loudly called the client a waste man, and, uh, <laughs> and all the kids <laughs> in the room just completely <laughs> fall about laughing, and it's brilliant, and you can't help but kind of begin to adopt and, and share experience, because that's what we were doing in return, you know, you, you could, you had amazing experiences of, you know, prolific street robbers, you know, young men in serious trouble who've seen really tough times come into a space where they're taken seriously and they're given serious opportunities, and very quickly stop showing up with their hoods up and their sunglasses on and start turning up in chinos and a shirt and they start begin to take their opportunities in life seriously and it's that exchange of experience which is the chemistry of of liberty
1: so and let's talk about so how it works at a slightly deeper level because you've got people that the team that work with you and every day but yep. you've got like a bigger network as well that you involve in the projects is that a, a fair description
2: I should describe it as as the so there's a new leadership team uh, Alex Scott is the new CEO Felix and many others uh, James and Katie Woodrow Hill and others represent the new leadership team which I've me and Michelle have stepped out of uh, they would describe Liberty as a youth led creative network uh, which is their update on the system. And, and, the, and the effectively power was given to an entirely new team because it, the business needed an invigoration. You know, we were saying earlier, I believe agencies as a model do have a lifespan. And by bringing in an entirely new leadership team who have got very new ideas on where this should go, that that comes to bear. So the notion that the organization is a network of those young people rather than an agency which facilitates an exchange, I think, is a really powerful one. So that dynamic that takes place in the room can also happen now nationally. There's several thousand young people connected to Liberty via the obvious kind of channels, and they get the same kind of interchange, whether it's opportunities or experience or a chance to engage with a brand or a job opportunity or start their own business. There's numerous things those young people can apply for that they're unlikely to get anywhere else. And in return, uh, Liberty seeks their imagination, their inspiration, their input into the work we do, but not on a one-off basis, on an ongoing basis. And it's the longevity to the relationships that create a space for trust, which is why Liberty's work is is usually based on a deeper level of insight than most others get near.
1: And you, do, this is, as this is a tech podcast, I guess, do you facilitate that? You sort of said the channels that you'd expect, but what's the way that you facilitate the conversation
2: with the young people? So, rooting it back in tech, it's you, you'd never start with the technology, but you know that often that's the end point. So to give you an example, a challenge magnified by technology that's facing young people would be the issue of sexting. So... You know, the, the request for an inappropriate image that's then returned and shared on social media, which has life-threatening you know, implications, yep. depending on, on, on who you are. And Revenge so, porn and all that fun and stuff that happens afterwards. Exactly. Incredibly serious implications. So uh, the brief arrived at a number of agencies. It arrived at, at Liberty as well. And the brief was for an awareness campaign. How do we create more awareness around that? So you can you know, imagine what the results might be. Because we start with the young people, we park the problem go back to the young people, what we found was that awareness wasn't actually what was required. Awareness was at was 99.9%. You know, everybody knew about this. What was required was utility. And what was required was utility at the point of need. The point of need is I've received a text message, get me the fuck out of this. Yeah. The, the deeper understanding is actually this is just an enhancement to the kind of flirting that anybody has done, you know, for generations. So the solution... Uh, was presented to us by a young person who had stored on his phone a picture of some dog poo and when asked for a dirty picture he would reply with a dirty picture uh, <laughs> status maintained you know flirting maintained he's a funny guy nothing compromised so we built an app working with young people created a series of hilarious memes that they all came up with that get you the F out of that situation and allow you to continue trying to evolve and understand relationships which is all that is part of yeah. but the technology misused has taking you down one path so starting with the insight and the opportunity of young people, then taking it on a you know, really youth-centered approach, technology is more than likely part of the solution. Guess what? Ask young people what they want. More memes. I mean, <laughs> who'd have thought? Well, that answered Felix's question. So if you'd just left it to young people, would you have got there? But the combination that a guy called Cal used to refer to as the wisdom meets naivety, the naivety of young people that they would have come up with that answer, and then the wisdom of the people in the room that think can enable that and turn it into a, you know, a well-designed app product
0: yeah and I want to talk about pirates but I just want to round off by saying I don't think there could be any better rubber stamp or accolade of the success of the model than receiving the Grand Prix from Beamer last year which is for those that aren't familiar is a very very highly regarded industry award normally given to a body of work or a campaign for the first time the BEMA judging panel which is it's about 45 people from the sort of top echelons of the industry decided to award it to Liberty as an organisation Uh, you know, to represent the change that they've made and the traction that the model has had. So congratulations, you know, what I imagine you never dreamed it would have got to that level of of wider appreciation when you set out, you know, all those years ago in 2001 and and, and here we are.
2: Thank you. It really was a moment. And for me, because that was the year, that was my last year starting out as the CEO and it was the year that I finished not as the CEO with this team that I'm very proud of and excited by the, the direction they're taking. So to have felt that, felt so, so good because you you can see the effect you've had on young people's lives. You can see the clients you have changed their thinking. You can see the team who've come through the business. Mm. But in a weird way, and this sounds arrogant, but... It was our intention. In the very, very first uh, Liberty business plan, when we weren't even called Liberty, the intention was to change the industry by proving the model works. And by proving that, being purpose-driven, by working deeply with your audience, and again, uh, identifying that they're not just opportunity, but also responsibility, you could lead you to better, more creative, more strategic, more impactful work, to then see the model replicated. And now Liberty, whilst we used to have that first-to-market challenge, it was a very hard thing to sell. Now there are multiple organisations with a bit of a Liberty model. And, And whilst that creates a commercial challenge, that really is our biggest success.
0: Totally. And I think people listening to this who aren't working in agencies, this applies to you as well. You know, Liberty were able to leverage this idea to work on behalf of clients with their own, you know, with their brands. But I think that putting purpose first is something I truly believe is the future of all businesses really and and is you know that acknowledgement is a kind of generational shift as well that this needs to change and I'm sort of segueing a little bit into some of the inspiration that I know you had for for piracy
1: there's a if someone's thinking about starting a company there's a there's a a tool called purposely uh, that helps you bake into your company's articles the purpose of your organization and which is an it's an underused capability in limited company formation to sort of actually not just adopt the standard articles and sort of bake into what you're,
2: you're trying to do into the sort of formation of the company and if somebody is thinking about it I would say that uh, I, what I perceive often one of the barriers is that oh my gosh it's got to be some kind of world changing meaning Yeah, and I don't think it is that I think that uh, for Liberty we set out with this goal because we were going to work directly with young people so it was, it was a natural part of it but I'm just as interested and in think there is just as much benefit in purpose being you know there are two sides to purpose one being a higher sense of meaning the other one is just doing your job well you know, and I think that efficacy actually has a real place. And I think the purpose is a deliberately woolly term that will be short-lived. I think this idea of purposeful brands will become so exhausting and annoying. You know, if you can't walk down a supermarket aisle with every single packet of biscuits or or, or, or shampoo, you know, calling out for some kind of equality, it's just going to bleed itself out. But the ideas of transparency, of diversity, of equality, you know, they're real and meaningful aspects of business that we have to get our head around. So this is just the beginning. It's the, it's the catalytic converter of the change that's coming.
0: But they just become the template of what's acceptable, don't they, eventually? And then you don't have to highlight them because their absence will be obvious.
2: Completely. And if, uh, you know, I, I like the case of Barclays, because I think we've, we've worked on life skills because it's very much a youth-led programme. It's excellent, delivers skills to young people in secondary schools, led by young people. But If Barclays had just focused on its original values, would it need a multi-million CSR campaign? When Bob Diamond in 2012 is in front of the Select Committee and is asked by the Select Committee for the values of Barclays Bank and can't recite them, Hmm. yet they are honesty and responsibility, you begin to beg the question, if they'd just been a very good responsible lender helping start businesses and people save money, would they have been in the mess they were and that they needed to dig themselves out of? I was so trying some- to re- remember them myself because I used to work there
1: and I was struggling. I, <laughs> I, I, I came over all a bit Bob Diamond about it.
2: <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, when, whenever you see the values on the wall in three foot letters, if anyone has to remind themselves that honesty is one of their values in three foot letters, then typically you can't trust them. And it's got to be something more meaningful, but it doesn't always need to be changed the world. A well-run business that looks after its people that tries to be less based on exploitation is, I think, the only step forward we need to take.
1: It's, it's, this reminds me of when I it was a manifesto it's called manifesto and I originally wrote a document called the manifesto uh, and, um, and and but for me that was the only way to start a business like, to sort of describe what it was going to be and so I think there's actually probably a generation of people that, that start businesses a bit more consciously uh, than, than perhaps you know I want to sell more widgets and our sort of headline really was create a company we'd want to work for and then there was sort of stuff that sat underneath that that was maybe got deeper into the meaning but I think at, at its simple level it was just that that made the right choices, made the right decisions at the right times, to mean that you would never get that sort
2: of bad feeling of why on earth do I work for these people? Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting interplay between this and technology because the the ease of starting your own thing or the opportunity of starting your own thing, once the barriers are taken down, you know, I started don't panic twenty odd years ago. It was business plans and bank managers, and it became you know um, an externalized uh, idea. If it's something that you're doing overnight and you've just built it between you and a group of people and it's something you love, it's more likely to be truer to who you are. Therefore, it's more likely to be connected to passions. There's an intrinsic relationship between purpose and technology that I think is one to be explored.
0: And uh, here we are standing in Manifesto's rather lovely HQ on Shoreditch High Street. Next to the freeze-dried moss wall, which I, I, I'm told was not cheap, so clearly it can succeed, and you can align great purpose with commercial success, right? Which is, uh, you know,
1: something like that. Or sometimes you just have a momentary loss of <laughs> thought and order. Expensive moss walls. It's, it's a glorious thing
0: that gets mentioned all the time on this. Uh, this fantastic. You're just that. You're the precursor, production.
2: and you know, using the technology as our, our analogy. Now, how unthinkable it would be that a business doesn't have a website. You know, or, or lo and behold, the, the business that you can't buy from within two clicks from my phone, um, no matter where I am. And similarly, I think this moment, you know, there are, there are only, depending on which econ- economist you believe, you know, Schumpeter says there's only seven great economic waves of all time. You know, there's the steam engine, the industrial revolution, the information age, we're heading into another one. So number four, by the way, <laughs> it's likely from, you know, the, what, are the, what are the runners, you know, to determine what the next big evolution of business are. You know, and who's anywhere close to this notion of large-scale transparency, uh, of social innovation, of clean technologies? You know, it's in that space. So in the same way that now we look back and, and think of a business without a website being ridiculous, but at the time, you know, even, even some of the biggest players didn't know it was going to hold. That's what we're at the very beginning at. This is the catalytic converter of an evolution of our business model into one that will always be purpose-driven to some degree, connected to its audiences, and will look ridiculous in 40 years if it's not. So talking about
1: purpose, um, you renamed yourself a few years ago Chief Purpose Officer. Yes. Um, uh, so
2: tell us a bit about that. Um, that was to make this point. So uh, in the early 1900s, the, one of the best jobs you could get around, around town was the Chief Electricity Officer because the technology had arrived and you, know, you needed it to be part of your business. And if you didn't give it senior leadership, responsibility and budget it wasn't going to come about, right? So then the chief technology officer, you know, that came about for exactly the same reasons. And and it begins to feel dated, you know, the chief electricity officer obviously feels dated, the chief diversity officer, that's a big thing at the moment, because we know that diversity is not just a a, a piece of political correctness, it's a competitive driver in our businesses. So my proposition is that purpose requires that equal level of senior understanding and acknowledgement, because it is not just a, a nice to have add on, it is a core part of what's driving business success
1: but maybe where you're getting to now is that we're living in a post chief purpose officer age
2: we are at pre purpose <laughs> uh yeah it, it was de- it deliberately a glib title to, and you know like like the chief technology officer will feel a very dated thing i think there is an, a moment of it and it was an essential moment but it has to evolve it has to mature and it has to become less prone to criticism and also less prone to you know pot noodles doing something about gender equality which in in yeah, itself yeah. in a micro moment is great right and I don't don't want to take that away from it but it's also easy to be cynical about it because you know what's the business model that sits behind it
1: yeah of course it's, it's easy to be cynical about it because as you drill into the ingredients of the product it turns out maybe there aren't even any noodles in pot noodles <laughs> so uh, let's get back to the core business and go hang about you're pulling a wool over our fucking eyes with the noodles don't try and like get all on all about diversity like get the noodles right
2: first yeah or back to the, back to the, you know, the topic of the show you know you've got some of the big the biggest tech players they came out with a promise that was positive you know whether it's literally don't be evil uh, marked on the wall and now you know largely held up as a brand that we view with much cynicism for its attitude towards paying taxes and privacy issues yeah. you know facebook absolutely you know where zuckerberg would like to be and the, some of the views that he represents are completely at odds with some of the ways that that's you know or airbnb others you know the promise and idea of sharing as a principle but all of those these ideas need to be closely held to account. It's interesting,
1: though, isn't it? Because when you create a company, at some point, it often takes a life that is slightly different to that of the perhaps a, an original founder's vision. So, if you're Mark Zuckerberg, he clearly still has substantial influence at Facebook, but Facebook has become a machine, and that machine has got venture capital money and and private equity money and and a lot of other people trying to influence it. And so, I suppose there's an interesting how what happens when um, purpose-driven people and, uh, are affected by other forces from
2: outside them? I think that's where something that purposely comes into play, you know, uh, I think considering it right at the beginning. Um, by and large, I think often business models have been based on some degree of exploitation over time, either of individuals, human capital, the environment, resources, you know, somewhere along the line. Um, and if it's not going to be, what's the business model that you're starting with? And how does that begin to shift and change the decisions that you make? And of course, not only companies, but also
1: entire countries' relationships with other countries are, are sort of a se- essentially built on the same model.
2: Yeah. And there seems to me to be a question uh, where we're at. Is the way things are the only way that they can be? Or are you ready? Are you frustrated enough? Are we convinced enough yet that the system feels somewhat broken, you know, shifted in the, the, the favour of the few? And are there not enough tools around us to suggest there's opportunity for rebellion and doing things differently? And so 300 years
0: ago, a group of people had that very realisation, did they not, Sam? And, and started an interesting movement that we think of very differently now in the sands of time. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about what happened 300 years ago and, and how some of those people were feeling and what it led to.
2: 300 years ago, a group of professionals in their 20s and 30s feeling deeply frustrated with an unfair establishment, a broken system and a set of rules that favoured the few decided that they would reject the society they saw around them. ...and rewrite the rules themselves. It was a time that bears many similarities to that which we're in now. You know, riven ideological conflicts around the world... ...the the first multinational corporations of the world... ...raping the world for its resources... ...and an incredibly stratified system that suggests that, you know... uh, ...you you will not progress through this. It was a dark and brutal time. And these guys said, fuck you, we're going to do things differently. It was a time of great innovation and of change. And so they rejected uh, what they saw around them... ...and they are who we now call pirates... Over time, there has always been pirates. And we are just talking about the golden age of pirates. It's this 40-year period, exactly 300 years ago. And what happens is, is really rather remarkable. And I think it's something that we can learn from now. Because as we stand with the same kind of challenges facing us, and this generation particularly, who also have the tools hugely at their disposal, and still this, 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 this lie that sits behind us that there is no other way of doing things. And I think we lack... Some of the role models, you know, I'll be goddamned if I have to sit down with another group of young entrepreneurs and Uber is the only kind of model that we can aspire to. Sometimes it's necessary to look beyond the, you know, the, the, the great teeth and the, 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 the funny surnames of Silicon Valley and dig into history to find real moments of change, positive, progressive, social change, innovation that isn't woolly and worthy, that is balanced with fortune and fame, but that also stands for having an equal say for having uh, an equal play and equal pay. And that's what these guys did. On pirate ships at the time, you began to see really interesting things emerge. You see the first ever time of universal suffrage. Everybody on board gets a vote you know this is a time when giving a vote to women was seen as an anathema an, you know we're, we're over 100 years before the suffragette movement and female um, leaders too female leaders absolutely it's not until 1972 you saw a female leader in the fortune 500 and a little bit later than that you saw it in the uk uh, it's when you first see the system of dual governance that you've got someone in charge of culture and someone in charge of strategy peter Drucker suggests that several hundred years later and it's 20 years ahead of any kind of governance system that sat in any business or organization they're light years ahead in terms of global branding we largely think that was coca-cola but actually 150 years before they did Invented the Jolly Roger specifically as a signaling theory to increase their profitability and reduce their recourse to violence. Uh, it's the first time you saw social compensation, so if you were damaged in the workplace, you received a payout. Uh, which then became an inalienable human right nearly 250 years later. Again and again, even same-sex marriages was first seen on a pirate ship, a process called matilarge that even had inheritance worked out within it. Cocktails were first invented on a pirate ship. Again, That and was again. my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> again and again, you see something happen. Yeah. True innovators. Rejecting society, rejecting the rules and opening your minds to the idea that something can be different. And there is an optimistic, practical, inspiring space that we are not learning from. And we find ourselves at a moment when optimism, imagination and solutions are much needed. So it's time, I think, to be a little bit more pirate. And for people listening and for Rob and I, how do you be more pirate? Step one to quote a recent song. First thing I would suggest is go and find a stupid rule and break it. You know, a rule, a rule that you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone will run into one today. I'm sure you've already probably come across one. I know I have this morning and break it. Just fucking break it. See what happens. Chances are nothing that bad. Do you know my favorite rule to break? Go on. It's jaywalking in Germany. I, I love just walking
1: across roads in Germany because the looks you get. Do from they just people, freak out? It's like, there is no traffic here. I'm an adult. I can cross this road. I know it's not exactly
2: changing the world stuff, but the fact that the reaction of people to that breaking of a rule that I find bizarre. I think that's where it starts. I think that it's, it's, it's in remembering your power to break a rule and how that feels. And what happens when all the institutions around you begin to suddenly crumble a little bit because you realise, and in most instances, you push back a little bit and it will yield. And if that's the case, then where else could it be the case? And when it becomes something important, it becomes really important. There are numerous times in history, we don't have to cite them all, when actually following the rules was the worst thing that you can do. And as we face you know, increasingly times of great change and choice... Not all rules should be followed blindly because they're rules. So stage one, find a rule to break. See how it feels. See how you got away with it. And then stage two, come up with a new rule. And this is what really distinguishes the golden age of pirates because they're not just, you know...
0: It wasn't just anarchy, right? As much as we all are told the stories now of ruthless plundering with, with yeah. no, no law or regulation, it was quite the opposite.
2: It's quite the opposite. It's not just breaking rules but rewriting rules. And in the creation of a new rule, really what you're talking about is, is mutiny. And I am really, really into and I am advocating a greater use of professional mutiny of professional mischief, of professional rule-breaking and rule-recreating to see who follows you. And there's numerous examples of it. Now, I'm, I'm drawing inspiration from 300 years ago, but in the book and in all my research, this I've, I've created this kind of five stages, this five-stage framework of what I think pirate change brings about. And every one, I've sought modern examples to test my theory. You know, is this true? Where's someone broken a rule, then rewritten it for others to follow that then changes everything that comes subsequently? And there's no shortage of examples. My, um... One of the ones in this this section is uh, Chance, what Chance the Rapper has done. You know, the first ever, the only artist ever to win a Grammy without having a record deal or or commercially releasing a piece of music. You know, fantastic. Completely afforded the opportunity through technology, but it was the chance to break the rules that made everything flow very differently. Now what happens because of that mutiny? The the many thousands of young people aspiring to a career in music completely changed their relationship with the music industry, completely changed their sense of who they are, their sense of entrepreneurship. You know, business models are disrupted and something begins to really change. That's my idea. That's what I'm looking for. That kind of that level of of mutiny. But it begins with something very simple. A conversation between him and, and Childish Gambino about don't necessarily try and seek a record contract. See what it's like if you stream it. So small rule breaking I'm very happy with as a beginning. But where it can lead, where it can pound, is really where it gets interesting.
0: And I think the key, once you get past the kind of humorous title and the, you know, obvious gags about pirates, and you start to look at the man behind the mask, as it were, in terms of what you've done in your career and life today, you start to see that this is not just a provocative playful thing this is actually something potentially quite profound in terms of the the call to action that you're asking for and you know you kindly let me have a a pre-read of the first chapter because the book isn't released till may and there are a couple of things in that i thought were really interesting and you talk a bit about how you know the unicorns that gallop out of silicon valley leave a pile of horse shit behind them and and that you know maybe we're in this time right now where It's going to get worse before it gets better and that no one's coming to save us. And I'm basically quoting you here repeatedly because they were all great lines. But I feel really strongly about that. And it's something we've discussed a number of times from all kinds of different angles on this podcast about how technology is changing our lives, which is what this is all about, ultimately as a theme. And how, in many ways, that's dangerously negative. And, and that we need to take control and take charge and break some rules and, and, and rally together, most importantly, in a, in a, in a revolt, right? In a, in a mutiny, in a, in a revolution. So maybe talk a bit about that and about, you know, what, how you see that problem and that challenge in the world. You know, you, we talked about how you saw liberty go from a concept to delivering change. What in your wildest dreams would be success for this pirate movement?
2: So the book started as a metaphor, for change and because i've been inspired and i've been very lucky to work with young people the world over in the last three years four years i would say there's a complete shift in those young people who i've known for a good 20 years and it is technology enabled and it is a sense of the the ownership of the means of both production and distribution that wasn't there before that you can be self-retailing self-promoting self-merchandising self-manufacturing in an instant on a phone and that is now part of the norm you know and we know that Context affects our evolution. So if that's the daily reality that I wake up in, of course, that's going to begin to have an effect on who I am. But what's interesting to me, and I'm speaking to young people in countries all over the world, it's not just that sense of I can. It's uh, also I want to do something that makes a difference. And whether that's been I've worked with kids in inner cities, in rural areas, middle class, working, this sense that I'm going to do something that means something is just profound and is there. And I can't, I can't put more of a precise term on it because it changes, but it's, it's very rare that I've not found it. And I've worked on Beam Pirate since its development in the townships of South Africa. I've worked on it in inner city Baltimore. I've worked on it in the heart of Athens. I've worked on it in, in corporate boardrooms. And this sense is there. It's in everywhere I've looked. And I've deliberately tried to look outside the norm. So, if Liberty's greatest success, and we, we had a clue of this at the beginning, wasn't just going to be the, the tens of thousands of lives of young people that we've seen face to face or the millions the campaigns reached, it was in shifting the industry. This notion that I've arrived at at the end of the book, when it's no longer a metaphor, is a manifesto, a manifesto of change. So the first part of the book that you've, you, you've, you've seen is repositioning the idea of pirates, that they weren't rogues, that they've been resold to us as, this romantic Johnny Depp kind of notion, that actually there's something in there that are role models, that needs to seriously be looked at, that should sit alongside other moments and movements of civil rights in our history. And then the second part is this framework of change. And, and the third part is a look at what was called the pirate code. So the pirates had this really strong set of laws that you had to live and die by, They were created by consensus. So everybody on board a crew collectively made this code. Then they were signed off in blood, kind of metaphorically, although maybe literally. Probably literally. Probably literally. Let's go with literally. Let's go with literally. With a rum cocktail. (laughs) And over 40-odd years, uh, they remain remarkably consistent. And this is obviously a time when there's no, you know, you can't Google it or or, wiki pirate it. And that's because they were built on profound values and measures. So going back to, you know, starting something with purpose, know exactly what the values are that you will live and die by, not that you'll put on the wall and forget. And in these codes are articles like fair pay. We will all get an equal say. We will all get an equal share. There's no, there's no pay gap issues that we're still facing uh, around diversity, around social compensation. You know, really evolved thinking it's signed off by a crew of what we think of vagabonds and bandits and rascals. And on that basis, they set out on their mission.
0: Was actually a high-functioning hol- holocratic community, right? In ma- in many ways,
2: hugely agile network based on dynamic structures, o- organizing themselves on a on a hol- holocratic principles, you know, un- unequivocally. We've just got nice new shiny terms. Well, sounds awfully trendy in this day and age of, of awfully of trendy S- Silicon Valley businesses. But as and they, you say, they were one hundred percent there, and they could crew up the largest known assembled crew was Captain Morgan when he sacked an entire city. Two thousand pirates. Uh, the average size of a pirate crew was less than two hundred. To be able to crew up together and then crew back down to your individual organization, not requiring the infrastructure between it, is pretty impressive from an organizational point of view. And that's why I'm, I'm interested by this code as a way of organizing yourselves. And so I have hypothesized a pirate code 2.0, which I know sounds a bit glib. But from the modern-day pirates that I've met around the world, I have discovered some of them organizing themselves around pirate codes. And principles that then determine the organisation or the activity that they do that come before the, the the business plan. And so I've assembled a set of those. And in just the same way, the original pirate code was lifted and stolen and adopted and adapted by all the different pirate crews. I'm putting forward the beginning of a pirate code 2.0 for others to lift, adapt, adopt, and steal.
1: Cool. And one of the things that you talk about uh, when I've seen you speak previously is um, the new citizenship project. And um, I guess the idea of what it is to be a citizen uh, mm-hmm. is uh, interesting and evolving. And, and I guess our individual and collective responsibility and, and that sort of part of this as
2: well. Absolutely. So I picked out the new citizenship project as one of the proposed codes of the future. I've looked for ideas whose hour has come. And when I look to the New Citizen Project and their manifesto, to me it feels that. You know, their, their idea is simply put that the singular definition of the consumer has had it run its course. That the very word consumer is finite. And in a world of finite resources, it is not helpful. They point to evidence that suggests even calling yourself a consumer can make you less likely to want to help participate and be an active member in society. Fascinating. And that if once we thought of ourselves as subjects, then we've proven that you can evolve and subject to consumer was an evolution. And there was a, a lot of benefit had out of you know, capitalism and what we've managed to, to, to achieve with it, but that it's time for an evolution. And what would happen in your relationships with the brands that you love, with the technology that we use and the businesses that we engage with, if we began to think of ourselves as citizens, with rights, you know, with democratic opportunity, with you know, immutable transparency, you know, we've been talking before this about blockchain and, and, and that, that's uh, technology's role as a pirate. And when you begin to link the opportunities that technology arrives at with the mindset of shifting ourselves to a citizen, the, the scent of rebellion is not far behind. And then if you can just lift yourself up for a moment, as these guys did 300 years ago, that perhaps there is a different way than the one we've just been sold. And perhaps if we all break a few rules, No one's going to do anything. And perhaps all of us breaking some rules together, we set some new rules before you know others are following. There is a chance for a real set of change beyond the election cycles, beyond the opportunities that we're told that we've got a chance for a modern mutiny.
0: And so I think we're kind of getting to the end of our slot. And I thought based on what you've just said, it would be lovely to finish with another little excerpt from chapter one, which is, you know, today if we want to improve this picture of our future, we have to do it ourselves. And the only way out of this mess is a little less Instagram and a lot more action, which I absolutely loved. Thanks very much. And the book's out 9th of May, is that right? Uh, the book is out in the 3rd of May. 3rd of May, and pe- on Penguin Random House, so it'll be everywhere, Amazon, online,
2: all good outlets, Audible, all, the full shebang. Already is, you can buy it from Amazon or Waterstones, depending on your preference for taxpaying organisations, or you can buy it directly from me and I will wrap it up in some nice skull and crossbones paper for you.
0: Wow, that sounds like a great offer. Um, what a deal.
2: Talking of gifts...
0: I you. Oh, wow. This, is I, this the first time we've had a gift on the Exo? So. I've been is. playing
2: around with the idea of uh, rogues and role models and brands and how we steal from them. So I've been making some <laughs> pirate logos. So you can have the technology so one. been as had, you're the straight guy, I've
0: been handed.
2: Seeing as, as you're the funny guy, you can, you so can do something oh, that, that looks a little
0: bit like a Samsung logo that just says pirates on it. It's great. Uh-huh. We've got Emirates with pirates Spernoff. I will tell you what, we'll we'll stick a photo on Twitter of us wearing our our t shirts. Think Jim's got the best one. I, I like this one. I thought you'd like that one, Sam. What a pleasure it's been. The, you know, the front cover of a book is the Steve Jobs quote: "I'd rather be a pirate than join the navy." And I think that definitely applies to me, particularly having heard your your wisdom on the subject. I can't wait to read the rest of the book. And to anyone listening to this. Go and watch the talk Sam's put online about the topic where he goes into some of these themes in a bit more detail and have a read and, and see what you think and, and break a rule, right? And, and challenge the system and try and make a meaningful difference in the world.
2: For the people the interested in, in your show, the topic of technology, you know, do you really think that the, the main reason that we've managed to invent all of this is simply to make a bit more money or, or make a change? Or have we invented the tools that a generation's mindset has arrived at that it now needs to unlock the change that's coming? And in, in what we've talked about with blockchain particularly, but a lot of the other applications that we see young people routinely with their hands on, don't tell me it's not a bigger chance for some serious change. And let's take it.
1: Thank you so much. If there's rum, I'm in.
2: There's <laughs> <As> always rum. <laughs> He's running. on board. There's always rum. That's running. what I did there. <laughs> Thanks,
0: everybody. Thanks, Sam.